0: Well, it's good to be with you, and uh, it's good that we're here, because there's lots of other places you can be on a Sunday morning. You can go out to brunch, you could be fishing, you could be at a wildlife expo. Lots of things you can do, but it's good for us to be here because it's here in God's Word that we're reminded of who we really are. So let's pray as we turn. Father, we need you to be with us. We need you to send your spirit to work in our hearts, and we need to hear the word of grace, the good news of Jesus. So we pray that you would speak to us this morning, in Christ's name, amen. Have you ever misunderstood a story? You thought you knew it, and then you read it again, you hear it again, you watch that movie again, and you realize it was something completely different? Sometimes you discover new layers. Like when you watch the Looney Tunes as an adult, and then and you remember, and then you realize all the novels, all the classic cinema, the Wagnerian operas that they're alluding to, and you realize there's so much more there than you saw when you were a kid. But sometimes we realize we've totally misunderstood it. There's an episode of Parks and Rec where, Tom, where uh, Ron Swanson uh, declares that he hates metaphors that's why he says that's why my favorite novel is Moby Dick no frou-frou symbolism just a good tale about a man who hates an animal well obviously it doesn't get more symbolic or metaphorical than Moby Dick but he totally misunderstood what the story was about right and sometimes this is the case, I think, especially as we go back to the Gospels, that we discover sometimes that there's more richness of layers than we've ever appreciated before. And maybe sometimes we, under, we realize that we have really misunderstood something that's going on. So as we turn the page on a new chapter as a congregation, as I do as a minister, it's a good idea for us to go back to the story to go back to Jesus. And so this morning we're going to see in this breathless 15 verses, did you feel how breathless that was? We're going to see that God has planned this story, that God acts in this story, and that God continues the story. So let's think about how God has planned the story. The first three verses of this chapter might seem kind of like pretty par for the course if you're a Christian. If you've grown up around the good news, if you've heard about Jesus a lot, it's kind of like, okay, this is just a summary statement about what is happening here. But to a first-century Jewish hearer, this was an explosive. Think about what you're hearing: that this is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the news that the Lord has shown up. It's referred to in Isaiah multiple times. Isaiah 40, 41, 52, 60, 61. Over and over and over again, you hear about this good news in Isaiah. And Mark opens by saying, that's what we're talking about. That moment. And it's about the Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah in Hebrew. The anointed one. We, get, we, we kind of treat it like it's Jesus' last name, but it's a title, right? It's his, it's his title, that he is the one who is anointed. The one they've been hoping for has arrived. And then he adds that he's the son of God. And let me tell you, there is so much scholarly ink poured out over what does this mean, how did people understand it, but you know what? The church has always understood it correctly because the next two verses tell us exactly what Mark means. There's no confusion in Mark's mind because he goes on to quote from Isaiah. It's actually, for a little insider baseball, it's an amalgam of several quotations, (laughs) Uh, it, is, uh, it is Exodus 23.30, Malachi 3, one, Isaiah 40, verse 3. It's a bunch of them, but the main point comes out of Isaiah 40, which is, which is about this voice, but the voice is declaring that the Lord is arriving. The voice is John the Baptist, but the point is to declare that God has arrived. God is on the scene. So Mark is, Mark is starting this whole gospel by saying, this is as big a cosmic story as I can possibly tell you. This is it. This is the hope of Israel. I'm telling you that story. And then we hear about John, who shows up looking kind of weird. Uh, you may know that the last of the prophets, Malachi ends with a prophecy that Elijah, who was one of the other really famous prophets, would return before the Lord comes. And lo and behold, this guy John shows up looking exactly like Elijah. If you go to 2 Kings uh, Kings 1.8, you'll see that he's dressed exactly like Elijah was dressed. And for 400 years, no prophet had spoken. You get a sense of why this is so breathless, this opening chapter. Because if you were someone walking around Israel in the first century, your head would be spinning. All of a sudden, the prophet has shown back up. like Elijah. He's the guy we've been waiting for. He's the the step right before the Lord arrives. What does all this mean? And he's got this heavy-laden symbolic action where he's baptizing people. There was, I know this is a lot of background right up front. Bear with me. It's going to pay off. uh, He's got this heavy-laden symbolic action because some of the Jewish sects would would baptize apparently as a kind of repentance ritual. Others would practice it as a way of bringing non-Jewish folks, Gentiles, into the Jewish community. But John comes saying, all of you need this, baptism of repentance. He's playing the greatest hits of the prophets, repent. He's, he's got this new powerful Symbolic action, and everything is coming. And then one day, as everybody's trying to make sense out of him, some guy from a backwoods village shows up to be baptized. In other words, I'm, giving, I'm dumping all this back story on you to give you that sense that, that you're supposed to have your head spinning. In other words, all of the Old Testament is coming to fruition here. All that God has done was to prepare people for this moment. Another way of putting this, and the really important practical point we have to understand from this, is that God has been preparing this story. And if you want to understand the Bible... you have to understand Jesus. There are a lot of ways in which we who have grown up in the church can easily misunderstand the Bible as a a series of loosely connected stories. Maybe we kind of, that's just how we've sort of learned it. We just learned a bunch of stories along the way. We're not sure how they fit together. We know there's some laws, we know there's some uncomfortable prophetic stuff that we don't know what to do with. But what Mark is signaling to us is that all of that was pointing ahead towards Jesus. All of it. And in fact, I'll tell you, Jesus says the same thing about himself. In John 5, he says, if you believed in Moses, the most important of the Old Testament writers, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote of me. That doesn't go over well, by the way, uh, in John 5. In Matthew 5, he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, in other words, the whole of the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The, all of the sacrificial stuff, all the symbolism, was about him. It was to help us to understand more clearly what it was he was doing on our behalf. All of the great acts of God's redemption prefigured the act of redemption that Jesus would accomplish. Even all the failures, and let me tell you, some of you are doing that read through the Bible in a year program. You're going to notice this, if you haven't already, that the Old Testament history is a lot of stories of failure. You might say, in fact, it is a story of failure, And all of that is to prove this point that it would have to be God to act decisively to redeem us. Not you, not me, not even people that saw Mount Sinai on fire who were delivered through the Red Sea could save themselves. All of this is to tell us that God is the one who's acting. And look, when you turn to the Scripture, there are three easy ways to get off track. One is to historicize it. That's what the academics do. Say, okay, well, these are just, we're just going to read these simply in their historical moment and not worry about what's going on in the rest of the Bible. Now, you need to understand what's going on in the moment. But you haven't understood it until you've understood how it's all driving to Jesus. Because what Mark is telling us, what Jesus himself is saying, is that God was at work through all of that. To drive to this one moment. The history is important. The historical context of all those stories are important. But you have to get to Jesus. You haven't really understood what it's all about. Until you've gotten there. Or you could moralize. We do this all the time. We tell stories. We read about David and Goliath. And it's a story about how you ought to face your fears. We read all kinds of stories. And it's funny how often people get contorted. Trying to convince ourselves that, well, we have to find the good guy in this story. Read through the book of Judges. Even a lot, of, most of the judges were not good guys, and yet they were the people God was working through. We, we, we missed the point, right? Not because morality doesn't matter. Of course it matters. But it is Jesus who fulfills the law on our behalf, and it is Jesus who teaches us what it actually looks like to obey the law fully. Obedience that's from the heart. Or, and this this is the Presbyterian one, and I'll confess it's my tendency, to theologize. Does theology matter? Yes, of course it matters, right? You have to be able to talk about God. You have to know things about God in order to actually know God. But you have to know God. You get the distinction? It is one thing to know about a person. It's another thing to know a person. It is one thing to know things about our spouse, our children, our friends. It is a whole different thing to actually know them. And what all of the Bible is driving us to is to know God. If you want to understand the Bible better, even if you're here and you're not, you don't have all this background and you want to understand what is going on here, you have to understand that it is all going to Jesus. It is all coming back to this point. So God has planned it all, but God is also acting. Remember what we said, they were everybody's head is spinning over, over this prophet that showed up, and then some no-name guy from a pretty much a no-name village, way up in the north of Israel, is baptized, and the sky is ripped open. It's actually a little unclear whether anybody else sees this. <laughs> That's the funny thing. Uh, in John 1, we hear that John saw it, uh, for sure. But, but Jesus shows up, and John starts talking about him. And he starts acting as if he is the one that they've been waiting for. That the kingdom is at hand. And notice this it is this profound Trinitarian moment here. The Father speaks from heaven, the Spirit descends on Jesus. And of course, he is the Son that has taken on flesh. And what does the father say? You are my beloved son. There's one other place where something like this is said in Mark. And that's in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 7 is this moment where Jesus is transfigured. He kind of glows with the glory of God. And at that moment... A voice also from heaven says, this is my beloved son. In these mo- two moments, bookend Jesus' ministry. The one is the signal to start his ministry. And the other is the signal to end it, to head towards Jerusalem. We'll get to chapter 9 in a while. But it is the, it is the signal to begin and to end. It is as if the father is saying, remember who you are. He's saying, you're my beloved son. Remember who you are and what that means. And that means of course that he is the one who will lay down his life for us. And he begins that by going off into the wilderness. Notice it's the spirit that drives him into the wilderness. And Matthew and Luke have much longer versions of this and if we were in Matthew and Luke we would probably have a separate sermon on what is going on there. All the Mark tells us, though, is that he confronts Satan after going through 40 days of testing. Does 40 days sound familiar? A little bit? Noah, Moses up on the mountaintop, same days, the years, Ratio was wandering in the wilderness. There's, of course, all this symbolic importance in the 40 days. But most of all, what he's doing is doing what adam failed to do at the very beginning jesus is replaying human history he is the accuser is showing up telling him lies and again we could we could spend a long time if we were in matthew or luke <laughs> on what exactly that exchange is about but the 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 real importance here is that Jesus does what Adam could not. On our behalf, he turns Satan away. He refuses his lies, and he is faithful to the Lord where we were faithless. He was faithful where we are faithless. And all of this is to say that it is God who is the one who is the main actor here. We're going to see this time and time again throughout the Gospel of Mark. Mark is not interested in making the disciples look good. He is not interested in making the crowds look good. He's not interested in making certainly the religious leaders look good. All of them are faithless, but Jesus is faithful. God is the one who is acting to redeem. God is the one who is on this mission. And there's mysteries about how it is that God is working in our lives. But there is one moment where it is all crystal clear. That Jesus showed up. That he suffered and died and was raised up for us. And that's what it looks like to understand the story we're caught up in. We're told often to re- reflect on how God has provided for us. And we should be thankful for all the ways in which he's provided physically, the ways in which he's provided our needs. But the thing that will bolster your faith is not what your situation is. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm paying attention to my situation, it is a day-to-day Dicey scenario. Actually, I've got kids. It's like hour to hour. If you're looking at your situation, there's certainly much you can be thankful for, but it will not give you faith. Because if you want to know that God is for you, that God has acted decisively, you cannot look at what's going on day in and day out in your life right now. You have to look at what Jesus has done. When God showed up, what did he do? When you're tempted to ask, why is this happening to me? The question we ought to be asking is, why did he let that happen to him? It's not that that's a bad question about your own circumstances. It's not that you can't struggle to understand what God is doing in your life. But the way to struggle with that is to see it through the lens of what Jesus has already done. Will God forget you? Did Jesus come down and endure all of that for you just to forget about you? To let you fall through the cracks? No! This is God's story. Think about his patience in Christ on your behalf. How much he endured. We're going to see how much he endured as we go through Mark, if you don't already know. Think about his kindness towards us when we treated him so unkindly. Think about Jesus' suffering on your behalf, his determination to redeem you when we're wondering day to day whether he's faithful. Think about how faithful he is to you over and over and over again. A good illustration of this, this way of understanding ourselves, it comes from John Calvin. So, if we had a patron saint in Presbyterianism, if we were into that sort of thing, Calvin, of course, would be at the top, the top of the heap. But you, you may or may not know a lot about Reformation history. He was a refugee from France, and he had written a couple of little books, And then he got guilted into staying in Geneva to be their pastor for two years. In two years of being harassed and bothered by people, the city council kicked him out. And then he found a really sweet gig in Strasbourg with a great French refugee ministry, a bunch of thriving churches. There was all this support. The city council was all behind it great situation, and then after three years of that, the Geneva Council wrote him back and said, you know, on second thought, it's total chaos down here, could you come back? And uh, his friend, William Farrell, wrote him to encourage him to go back, And and Calvin, in his letter back to William, said this, he said, I would rather submit to death a thousand times But, when I remember that I am not my own, I offer up my heart, presented as a sacrifice to the Lord. Most of us aren't going to be great religious leaders. But did you notice how simple, how basic Calvin's logic is there? This is not an insight that some profound theologian has that isn't open to you. It is simply this from 1 Corinthians, that you are not your own, but were bought with a price. That's what it looks like to see that God is the one who is acting here. That it is God's story into which we are caught up. And there are so many other stories competing for our attention. Your career path is a story. The version of your family that you're supposed to have is a story. The idea of what you have, that w- what would be a comfortable life, or what it would be to be someone who is influential, Or to be somebody who really has control over what's going on around them. Those are all stories that we tell ourselves. But if you're a Christian, your story is quite simple. Jesus gave all of this. All of it for for you. He suffered, died, was raised up. So you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And there's no better place to be. There's no one better to belong to. And finally, God planned it and God acts, but God continues the story. You notice Jesus emerges from the wilderness with this message. That the time is fulfilled the kingdom is at hand, so repent and believe. There's something weird that happens. You may have noticed this. Lots of people, have commentators, have noticed this over the years, that Jesus talks about the kingdom, but after Jesus is resurrected and ascends to heaven, they talk about the church, and they talk about his return and the new heavens and the new earth. What Jesus is declaring is that a new social order is breaking into this world. He is the king of it. He will decisively move to establish and guarantee that new order. And there will be a break. <laughs> what we discover is there's a break for a while, and the church will be that community that's gathered around it, has gathered around what he has done, and is defined by his life. And when he returns, he will finish that. He will finish that new social order the whole of the whole world. All things made new. Jesus in other words is beginning the story into which we're caught up in even now. Because while Jesus uses that language and then Later on, people use the language of the church. The imperatives are still the same. Repent and believe. Turn from our own delusional stories, especially the stories about our own goodness, and believe in Jesus. That is the story that we are to tell over and over and over again about who we are. What is the script you're telling? Some of us have invested a lot of time and effort into telling a certain story. We are on a career path. We have tried to manicure our families in a certain way. We have try to present ourselves individually a certain way. Some of you are in school where you're still figuring all those things out. And that man, that's 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 one of those, the hardest places to try <laughs> where you're trying to sort of present a version of yourself. And what the good news of Jesus is is that you're defined by him not by anybody else's stories not even by the ones you have made up. And that's what, we're gonna, that's what we do here, and that's what we're going to do here, is tell that story over and over and over again till we understand it. And then we're going to keep telling it over and over and over again because it's the best story around. Because I wouldn't want to tell any other story about myself. And because you wouldn't want to tell some other small story, but would rather be caught up in something so cosmic, something so great, that even now, it stakes a claim on your life. Because you are not your own, but have been bought with a price. Let's pray. Father, the good news of Jesus is on the one hand, so big, it's hard to summarize it. It's hard to get all of it together. And even in a passage like this, there's so many avenues we can track down, all these different allusions to what has come before. And yet, on the same token, the good news is simple. Jesus has died, is crucified and raised for us. So all we need to say is that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ that lives in me. Teach us to say that, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.